0: Hi, everyone. Just a gentle note here. Most of today's episode is like all of our others. We're speaking with a creative person about her latest endeavor. However, we are also addressing some difficult topics, including sexual violence against women. If this is a conversation that is difficult or triggering for you, this might be an episode you want to skip. And that is okay by us. Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Shelter in Place a podcast about reimagining life through creativity and community. Is there a word for a friend you've never met? An online soul sister, a Google guru, a kindred spirit. No matter the words I use to describe her, Laura Joyce Davis, the host of Shelter in Place, feels like a friend. Each week on her podcast, Laura shares stories that make me feel like I'm sitting around the coffee table or laughing with my best people. One listener described shelter-in-place as a warm hug. Others have called it binge-worthy and wonder-filled, like catching up with an old friend. So if you are longing for joy, rest, or beauty, if you are looking for a show that helps us not to escape out of life, but into it, check out shelter in place wherever you get your podcasts and stay tuned today at the end of our episode to hear a trailer for shelter in place what is the story your body tells we are so quick to point to gray hairs and wrinkles and complain about them I have a little arthritis in my right knee, and it makes me cranky about growing old. So much so that it's easy for me to forget the 10Ks I ran across that amazing Cooper River Bridge in Charleston, South Carolina. Or the rainbow of trampolines we bounced on when I first took my kids to this giant blowout birthday party in Los Angeles. Or the countless times this knee of mine supported me as I trudged from the visitor parking lot to where my dad was receiving treatment at the cancer center. Our bodies tell a story. Too often, I think we only listen to part of it. What else does your body say to you? Those crow's feet are also laugh lines, forged of smiles and gratitude and joy. Our belly rolls, those are remnants of good times. The bottle of wine we shared with old friends or a late night ice cream Sunday when a teenager needed us. Stretch marks are evidence of how we grew to accommodate another, and miraculously brought life into the world. Despite all of these stories, we can be really hard on our bodies, judgmental, unforgiving, angry. But take a deep breath. Hold it. Then slowly let it out. Do you feel your strength? Your wonder? Your awesome capacity for living? we only get this one body, folks. We might as well practice loving it. Our guest today reminded me of that. Laura Maylene Walter is the author of the novel Body of Stars, which envisions a world in which a woman's whole story, her triumphs, tragedies, losses, and loves are all written on a woman's body. Her writing has appeared in Poets and Writers, Kenyon Review, the Master's Review, the Horse Girls Anthology, and many other publications. She has been a Tin House Scholar, a recipient of the Ohioana Library Association, Walter Rumsey Marvin Grant, and a Writer in Residence at Yado, the Chautauqua Institution, and Art On Me. Laura is Editor-in-Chief of the Gordon Square Review and is the Ohio Center for the Book Fellow at Cleveland Public Library. Laura Maylene Walter, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm jazzed you're here Um, because I have the good fortune to know you, but I imagine at least a few of our listeners might not know you or your marvelous work. I'm wondering if you would just mind starting with the world's most general question and just tell us, Laura, what is your story? Well, I am currently a writer
1: in Cleveland but I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which some people outside of the area might know as home of the Amish. Um, (laughs) My my connection to the Amish was mostly limited to sometimes seeing their buggies out on the roads. And when I was in college um, at home for a few summers, I interned at a publication that had an Amish newspaper they published. So part of my job was typing up the letter is written in sent in by scribes from amish communities all over the country and canada so i I got some insider information there but aside from that i grew up in just your standard um kind of a, a, a suburban housing development that happened to be my house was right on the edge of the woods so it was just a patch of woods that had escaped the suburban sprawl for the time being but to me it was a vast forest And I spent a lot of my childhood there alone with my imagination out in the woods. And I was, you know, just a bookish child. I loved reading, I loved writing. I was extremely shy and introverted, but when I was with my friend group, I was a bossy little leader, and I always wanted to start clubs that had to have newsletters, and I wanted to write the newsletters and edit the newsletters and publish the newsletters. So when I look back, I think, oh, my God, I was really myself the whole time. <laughs> like I just was always myself from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I've always valued books and, and writing and reading, and I grew up in a house where that was valued as well my mother loved reading she had always wanted to be a writer and by the time she had been a music teacher before she had children And by the time I was a teenager, she decided to start pursuing her love of writing more seriously. So we would have writer's digest around the house. We'd have the writer's market. She took a correspondence course um, on creative writing and she began writing manuscripts. And so it was something that we shared and something we could talk about. And we both had this parallel dream in a way of wanting to one day publish novels and be writers. And you know, she died rather suddenly when I was twenty. And so that was a big, a big change in my life. Um, she She had cancer, but it was a very sudden, unexpected death. It was within two days. We thought we had years with her, and she went into the hospital on a Friday, and by Sunday she had passed away. So it was really, really hard. I was, at the time a college sophomore at home on winter break. And so my whole life just completely got upended. And, you know, through it all, through the years that followed as I, you know, finished college and I began working, I never gave up the dream of being a writer. And I do think, I think I wouldn't have given it up either way, but I think she had worked so hard and she had a manuscript and was starting other manuscripts at the time of her death and to have it just end so, like have that chance taken away from her, I think it, changed my outlook, and it made me think, I'm never going to stop working toward this goal. It, you're a writer, you know it can take a really long time and a long time to develop your craft. And but that that really had a big effect on me.
0: Oh my gosh, there's so much joy and heartache in there. I love thinking of you as Laura, Walter typist for the Amish. I think (laughs) I love this little image of you forming clubs with newsletters. That is adorable. And and then, of course, the idea that you lost your mom when you were home for winter break, that one day she was there and two days later she was not. I mean, I think you and I met, I, I know that you and I met when I was in the middle of a caretaking role for my own dad, who had a terminal illness, and that was its own kind of heart, heartache. Um, but I had a long goodbye. We were told, get your affairs to order. In order, you have 14 months to live. And so we, we thought that was, that was our Friday together. And then Dad, through all kinds of treatments and things we tried, you know, we, we got three Christmases When I think about it in in terms of what you're describing, right, heartache is heartache, but I think about the tragedy of, of not knowing. We knew, and that was terrible, but to not know, oh, my God. It's. I mean, there are so many different layers
1: and, and ways things can play out. I mean, I went to a grief group at college with someone who lost her father. I believe it was. I think it was a car crash. So there was no no warning, you know. And I try to look at it as I had a really really great mom for the first twenty you know twenty years of my life. And a lot of people don't have that. And so I do you know feel very lucky. And especially what she instilled in me. She was a very ambitious hardworking person when she decided to pursue writing it wasn't just a little side hobby for her she was really serious I have a box of her notes up in my attic of her, she would read craft books and take notes. And um, I just found a list that she had made. And I took one glance at it, this handwritten list. And I knew what it was. She was trying to title a project. I mean, as writers, we know what that's like, where you just write down all these lists of words and like different formulations, the blank of blank, the blank of blank. And so I saw that. And it was just so funny. It was, you know, she's been gone a long time now. But I saw that. And I was like, she and I were so similar in that way.
0: Oh, my gosh. I love that you. I love that you shared that. I just did that title thing literally on Wednesday. So I know exactly what you're talking about when you're just listing and crossing them out and moving the words around. But I think to some extent, all children are the realization of their parents' wildest dreams. You know, I just think she would be so proud of you. I know she would be so proud of you and the triumph of this of this debut novel. I think that's wonderful. Um, do you ever think about trying to bring her stories to light? Have you ever thought about unearthing that box of what your mom was working on? Always in the back of my mind, just thought of that.
1: She had only completed one book-length manuscript that she completed and really was able to polish, and that was a middle-grade novel. And she was working on this when I was a teenager, and again, approaching it very seriously. And I was about 18 years old when she had, you know, a polished revised draft, and she gave it to me to read. And as far as I know, I was the only person who who has read it. And when she gave it to me, she was so nervous because... When we talked about writing, we talked about it like two aspiring writers or two would-be professionals, so it wasn't just giving it to a family member to get praise. She respected my opinion, and she knew that I respected her enough to tell her if if I thought the manuscript had a lot of problems. I mean, yes, I was 18, so what did I really know? But I was a reader, and, and I would read it with an honest eye. So she gave it to me, and I remember being so terrified to read it. Sure. Because what if it's terrible? And, right, right. Writing a book is really hard, and <laughs> I knew that. And so I was I was really scared, and I took it. She was downstairs in our house, and I took it upstairs to my bedroom, and I lay on my bed, and I read the whole thing because it was middle grade, so I just sat there and read it straight through and when i was done i was so excited and happy and i was also honestly really relieved because i i liked it i thought it was very good like legitimately i thought it was strong and well written and well paced and imaginative it was a fantasy middle grade novel and i was just so proud of her you know and i went downstairs and she was in my memory at least she was standing there like waiting you know like waiting for the verdict and i could tell she was so nervous and, and I told her what I thought, and she was just—she was clearly so relieved, too. And, and I can't remember what else we talked about, but I know we talked about the manuscript. And so I have thought, you know, I have this, this manuscript. So we'll see. We'll see. Stay tuned, I suppose.
0: <laughs> so your debut novel, Body of Stars, came out last year, and it's fascinating. Um, I'm not giving anything away in here by saying that in this book, the markings on women's bodies predict the future. And when I first heard about this premise, I'm like, huh, that's fantastical. That's really out there. And then it's really not at all. I, first off, I started looking at my own body differently and, and considering the stories a body tells, right? I have, I have freckles and scars and I have wrinkles and stretch marks. And so on my skin, on my person, you can see stories of childbirth and pain and love did writing this book make you look at your own body differently?
1: I think it did. Um anytime I would get a new mole, for example, or, or just notice something, I would I would think about my book, you know. I remember once when I was deep in the revision of this novel, I was um at the dermatologist just for a routine skin check, and she was just, you know, scrutinizing my skin under a light and and I realized I felt a bit like my character in my novel because in the novel girls have to go through school inspections where they they have to disrobe and have a professional go over their body very closely and so obviously what I mean I was in a doctor's office it was a very different thing but it was it was this sort of jolt of you know of feeling exposed in a way and feeling someone else study your body. And of course, with the novel, part of the inspiration behind it was just the deeper level of being a woman or woman identifying person in this world who you don't always feel your body is your own or you feel you're under a level of scrutiny out there in the world and that people are noticing your body or judging your body for what it is. So all of
0: that definitely played a role in the novel. That's so interesting. We We learn in early on in the book that depending on where the markings are, that tells us something different. So that a splash of freckles on the upper left shoulder might predict a disease in a family. But then, you know, a a mole or a marking on the lower back might be an indicator for love. And I've had yoga instructors say that we hold grief in our hips. And I had a, a doula once cautioned me against a foot rub late in your pregnancy because the the foot was somehow linked to the, the uterus and childbirth. Um, so I'm wondering, how did you decide which traits went where on the body?
1: So that process... That evolved. When I first came up with the premise, I thought, okay, the arrangement of moles will foretell the future on girls and women's bodies. So that was the first idea I came up with. And I set about writing and I think I wrote a whole draft. I write very messy, unplanned first drafts. They're disasters. It's great. (laughs) So I think I wrote a whole draft. And then I honestly knew that I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it worked. I mean, clearly, it's a fantastic premise. It is not grounded in reality, and it's impossible. But just within the rules of the world, I realized I didn't understand it. And I would have writing group members or writing friends would read part of it. And they would ask how it works in this world. And I couldn't answer the questions. And so that really told me I didn't know enough. And so I would print out Pictures I would find online of just outlines of of female bodies, and I would draw on them and try to think of where things would go. The novel itself has some images in the book. There are two full body images, uh, diagrams um, that were inspired by an old medical textbook I had found. And so those diagrams show female bodies with lines pointing to different parts of the body. And in the old medical textbook I found, they would point to parts of the body that indicated ailments and problems, very, very outdated medical knowledge, not medically sound today. But it was really interesting to me about this, this old book that was saying, here's a woman's body, here's what's wrong with it, or what could be wrong with it, and here are the places. And so I kind of used that as inspiration as well to think about um, where things would go on women and what would be meaningful in terms of their futures.
0: It is crazy when you look back or even learn the strange phenomenon of usually men diagnosing often women with the the various ailments. Right, the wandering I'm uterus, a big the fan hysteria. Of the wandering uterus. <laughs> I mean, Lord, <laughs> yeah. really amazing. That amazing. was. <laughs> that's right. that's what we're said to be and so i i know that that i described thinking that this was fantastical and and you even said that this was a you know initially not grounded in reality but what i kept coming back to again and again was how darkly ominous and how much this book echoed the very reality that that we take for granted no our bodies don't predict the future but the discussion of when is a woman's body her own and who gets to have autonomy over it and make decisions about it instead of her, I thought that the feminist threads throughout this book were brilliant and and um, they would sneak up on me. I think I'm reading a book about a fantasy world and a make-believe place where bodies predict who you'll marry. And then I turn the page and I'm actually reading a book about conversations we're having right now about what rights a woman has to determine what will and will not be done to her body, what decisions she can make about it. So how, um, how on purpose are those feminist threads? Am I making them up? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. You're not making them up. When, when I first
1: started writing this, and actually, I could go back to the moment I conceived of the idea, which was in a writing craft class during a writing exercise. I came up with the premise on the spot and I started writing. I knew right from when I started writing the first few paragraphs, I knew I had my main character, Celeste. I knew that she would have a brother in her life who would be a big Um, he would be very important to her. And I knew that she would be the only one who had these markings predicting the future on her body as a girl, and he would not as a boy. And so I knew right away there would be some tension there. And so a lot of it was inherent in the story that women have something, men, a lot of men, not all, but that they want or they want to control or they want to take for themselves or that they find really appealing. And They might want to take it at the cost of the woman's privacy or her own ownership over her own body. So, all those parallels were very, very clear. Otherwise, though, I did not set out to, you know, the the book has some really dark themes. There are, you know, the theme of sexual assault and rape culture. It's definitely a critique of rape culture. I didn't set out to write any of that. I didn't really have any interest in writing that. But I realized as I was drafting the novel, in this world that these characters live in. And with this power struggle over women's bodies, I knew it was inevitable. And it was sort of this moment where I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to write about this. But I I felt it was really important for the book. And so I did.
0: That's so interesting that that is a theme that came up and it makes complete sense, right? Because, yes, on the one hand, men's bodies don't make this prediction and women's bodies do in the book. And so there is some... Uh, coveting that men have. Oh, your body does this and my body doesn't. But the, the darker undercurrent to which you um, refer is that when a girl comes of age in the society, her childhood markings go away and her adult markings come. And there's this in-between period, right, that it's kind of like a puberty. But in this book, it's it's much more luminescent, right? This changeling girl is, um, you know, in some ways more herself than she'll ever be. She's very alluring to to men and there are some really you know some of them are just cringy and then some are some are terrifying right so so cringy is that girls have to be inspected by their fathers during their changeling period which is um or by inspected by the the government as well this is a great example of it's not okay with any of the girls but it's just how it's always been done it's a cultural norm and no one feels empowered to change it and I could think of a handful of, Things in our culture now that just they just exist, right, and we, we we fail to to really challenge them, even though we don't like them. but yes, on the darker end of the spectrum, um, when women are are changelings, they are sexually alluring to men, so they are they are kidnapped, they are often raped, um, they are physically bodily harmed, and then often drugged, and they don't remember any of it, and afterwards, which was the part that just you know made me angry and again it wasn't a fantasy book anymore. It was real. Who who is blamed for this? Over and over, it's the girls, right? This they are the ones who are blamed. The men in your story who hurt them are are not, right? They couldn't couldn't help themselves. They they don't face any um any consequences. Um I think it's interesting that you say that you didn't want to have to write about this, but then when it came up you went ahead and and, and followed that thread where it would naturally go. Um, that's hard to do, isn't it? It's
1: very hard to do. It It's difficult. I do think, though, when I'm in the act of writing, and I don't know if you feel this way, even when writing about something really difficult or dark, writing about it is a sense of control. Um, and I'm, controlling the universe even though the characters sometimes feel they're acting on their own. Um so that that helps when I'm in the middle of writing it. I'm just so immersed in it. And it's only later maybe during editing or even after publication that it it has it it takes on a different life I suppose of its own. And you mentioned the moment The tradition in my book, Society, where fathers look at the daughter's markings, and I've had some really interesting reader reactions to that moment. Um, That seems to be, out of everything that happens in the book, including some truly horrible things, that seems to be what has upset a few readers the most. Um, and I can say that I took my inspiration for that tradition from purity balls and from um, some some traditions here in our own country where you know girls might pledge their virginity to their fathers. Personally, I find that very creepy um and and you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was interested in exploring that, like when in my in this novel, it's a very regressive patriarchal society, more so than ours. And so in that sense, the fathers are almost owners of their women, of their daughters' bodies. So that that was, but it was interesting that that's what hit a lot of readers so so hard. And I would also like to say, even though there are dark themes, it was important for me to also write about hope. Because this is a book, it is about the future too. It's about this magical, mysterious process that is real in the world of the novel of having your body spell out your future. And I think even though really dark things can happen because of that, because of society's reaction to it, it is also um, a beautiful thing that, that I found compelling for all the years that I worked on the book.
2: and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.
0: Okay, so we've already covered the fact that a woman's body in this book predicts the future, so I'm not spoiling anything there. And there are all kinds of predictions, right? They're not all grim predictions like uh, in, in one instance, a, a woman is predicted, a young girl's predicted that you're going to be a doctor. and so a formerly lackluster student really you know hits the books and becomes more serious and pursues a goal because it's it's predicted on on her. So some of the predictions in the book can really change lives for the better. They can really make, make women grow. Um, in other instances, the predictions that are written on your body can be, you know, ominous or even sad. One character's markings, you know, suggest the death of someone she loves. And so there, there was something beautiful that um, your main character, Celeste, wrote about this. And she says, quote, I've been thinking how strange it is that we know any part of the future at all. Imagine if we never knew when our loved ones would die. We'd never know when it's the final birthday or holiday or anniversary with someone. We'd never know to be on the lookout for the first sign of cancer, the initial ache of heart attack. We'd just live. That would be terrifying in its own way to know nothing. But sometimes I think it would be better. And the whole time I was reading this book, especially because I'm listening to our two stories about the loss of our parents, right? One of us knowing and one of us not knowing. And I don't know. What do you think? Is it do you is it better to know the good and bad news ahead of time like they get to know in this book? Is there something about that that's really that you just love? Or is it better to roll with the surprises no matter how good or how bad? I
1: have thought about this a lot as I worked on the book over a number of years. And as much as I'm very compelled by the premise of of people knowing the future as written in their bodies, I have firmly decided that no, I would not want to know any of these things. I wouldn't want the future on my body. I think, especially in the world of this novel, you know, things are only partially spelled out and they still have free will even though they have certain big events are set to happen. And I just, I think it's better not to know for for good and bad. I don't know. It was really fascinating for me to think about my character and how when our characters live in speculative worlds, it affects everything about their view, you know, their worldview and how they see everything.
0: So I, I found that to be an interesting thought exercise. I kept coming back to this idea about we are, I think, all of us. I remember being young and being impatient. I, I have a a soon-to-be 17-year-old daughter who wants to know w- where she'll get into college and and what what degree she'll have and and I remember playing on a Ouija board at a birthday party and and what's the question we all want to know is what's the name of the person we're going to marry like does this impatience for what the future holds and even as writers right will this next book be the book um, and yet here was Celeste this imaginary character in this imaginary world thinking about how bizarre and how breathtaking to not know and to just sit there and and to live and to accept what came as, this, as the wonderful surprise. It really made me rethink and, and hang out in patience in a way that I confess I'm not always prone to do. That was neat. And I also, that, you know, knowing or not knowing, I, I thought about... Um, my dad, because, again, we we did know, right? We had the get your affairs in order conversation. And I've shared this before, but we asked him, hey, Dad, where do you want to travel? What do you want to eat? Like, what do you want to do? What's on your list? And he was like, well, I need to get the ladder out and clean the gutters. And there's a tree in the southwest corner of the house we got to prune that back because those leaves are really – he didn't oh – his, his bucket list was – was it was non-existent. It was, it was the most mundane. He wanted to know, like, when his grandson's soccer game was It going to be at 9 or 10. Like, he was all about the most everyday minutiae. And my sister pointed out that, like, he did have, you know, dreams and things that he wanted to do but that his children had sort of taken the place of his bucket list. So my dad never traveled to Ireland, where his family was from, but my brother John did. And he kissed the Blarney Stone for him. And my dad never published a book, but I did. And he never painted much that he was proud of, but my sister has these framed paintings on walls. And my dad, you know, joined a a choir to sing with his sons in his older age. And he never sang a solo, but my brother did. So, like, his children were his bucket list and again the realization of dreams that maybe for him didn't come to pass, but I'm circling back, I guess, around to the idea that you are the realization of your mom's dreams and she the things she imagined and didn't do. You know, here you are doing them. And, you know, we don't always know what what dreams are gonna come and, and sneak up must and surprise us, um, which I love thinking yeah. about.
1: Well that's really lovely. And to hear you and your siblings and carrying on what your dad didn't und- didn't do and i think i think that's and it's really interesting what you're saying about knowing or not knowing in advance and that you had time and i feel like that that carries its own weight so it does it is almost like the characters in the novel of knowing and what that what and, and just the weight you have to carry from that but it's it's lovely
0: that you had that time i'm glad you had that time of knowing yeah yeah, this knowing and not knowing, it really stayed with me in this book. I was so grateful. Again, I i turned to what I thought was a fantastical story about a faraway fantasy world. And every time I turned the page, I was confronted with truths from my own life or truths from my own world. I, you know, I can't say enough about how beautifully written it is. Can we talk just for a moment about the MFA, the Masters in Fine Arts? Because there mm. are those who feel that it's absolutely worth the time, effort, and money it takes, and then others who balk. In my deep dive um, for this episode, I came across... Some of your past writing, including one of my favorites, which is the delightful McSweeney's piece entitled, quote, <laughs> Questions Not Asked in My MFA Thesis Defense. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> <just> gonna, <laughs> I know this is was a tongue-in-cheek for people who aren't yeah. familiar with McSweeney's. It's just a good laugh and a good time. But I, I loved a few of the questions that you were not asked in your thesis defense. Um, one of them was just, you know, quote, defend your behavior in the writing workshop. Just all of it, go. (laughs) And another (laughs) one was, if you were given an MFA redo, what changes would you make the second time around? We will link to some of your other more serious pieces in this one on the show notes, but I'm actually interested in these questions that you raise in this piece. So you can either defend your behavior in the writing workshop or discuss (laughs) the MFA and what changes you would make.
1: Wow, I'm thinking about some of the workshops and I don't, MFA programs can be such, they're such tightly knit communities and when you're in it in the moment, any kind of tiny little drama can feel so huge. And now, you know, then time passes and you realize none of this matters. But um, I almost want to reach out to all of my cohort members and say, hi, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're writing well. Let's never workshop again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I had wonderful, wonderful cohort members. But the MFA... I do get writers ask me this a lot because I didn't go right after undergrad. I I thought it was important to. Well, I needed to work first of all, so I wanted to establish myself and and start having quote unquote real life jobs, and the MFA was always in the back of my mind. I always just wanted to do it. I love being in school. I love writing, and I actually do love writing workshops. And I knew I had more to learn. And I will tell you, I was just lured by the possibility. I thought if I can get into a funded program and you know the school offers health insurance, then I can quit my job for two <laughs> years and write. I mean, that was honestly my full goal. I just want to quit my job for two years and write. And so that is what I did. I went to Bowling Green State University, which has a great program. I had a fantastic time. McSweeney's piece aside, I really, really did. I met some of my best friends there and learned a lot. I don't think MFAs are necessary at all. I think anyone who wants to be a writer will do it and you can make your own MFA by writing and going to local workshops here in Cleveland we have literary cleveland and other opportunities and so you don't you don't need one i always want to stress that it can be great if it fits your life if, you know, if you get into a funded program great or if you can afford one that that you do pay for, whatever works for you. You shouldn't feel lesser than if you don't have an MFA, honestly. But I will say for me when I went into the MFA, I went in, you know, I was coming from a corporate editing job and I was very I thought very clear-eyed about it. I knew an MFA is not going to get you a job. I knew I didn't expect anything coming out of it. Right. Um, I thought this is only two years to write. This is all it is. There's going to be no professional development. And as much as I wrote and learned a ton and I did, I got so much professional development out of it. It was actually <laughs> shocking. I was the fiction editor of Mid-American Review, which ended up carrying me along and and I've done other editing um Of literary journals since then. That was when I started teaching and when I started presenting at various writing workshops. And I had never done any of that before. The thought of teaching terrified me before the MFA. And now I teach all the time and I I give presentations all the time. And so it really, really helped me a lot in that respect. So I think if people just do their research and if they want to go to a program, do it. And if you don't, you'll be fine.
0: I love that. And that's a great, um, great advice for Thinking about an MFA is time to trying to write and time to pursue a profession, but there are literary Cleveland here in Cleveland, and I know that Rebecca Mackay works at um, Heads Up Story Studio in Chicago, and there are all kinds of organizations that do the good work of writing workshops and and helping you bring a fledgling story and say, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think?" And and a good workshop, a good sh- workshop that's based on mutual trust, where you're bringing us pages and we're not saying change this and change that, and I don't like that. And on page four, it's that's spelled wrong, right? They can be they can be aggressive and hostile, but if you have a trusting community where you say, "Here's what I'm thinking," and they say, "Oh, I love this," and I love this, and I have a question here, I'm wondering, it can be a, it can be a real beautiful thing, um, and it
1: is a special time just to have professors and your peers giving your work attention because as writers that's sometimes what we need most of all is just attention reading a critical eye um, so that can be really helpful. And also, I did have really lovely professors. And when I wrote that McSweeney's piece, I actually sent it to them. And I said, because I think it published not that long after I got my MFA. And I sent them a note saying, you know, this is just <laughs> a joke. You know, I appreciated you, right? And your thesis.
0: defense.
1: <laughs> I didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea. But you know, well, I thought it
0: was very funny. Hey, who are some of your, uh, your writer crushes or your writer parents or whose work do you just love?
1: Oh my gosh! Um, well, we we brought up Rebecca Mackay a few times, but I love her. I think she's fantastic. Um, coming up, I really I loved, of course, Margaret Atwood, which maybe you can tell just from from some of my my work. But I really admire her work. Um, Octavia Butler. Um, I loved Alice Munro. These are kind of uh, kind of classic, really really power powerhouse writers, I think, um, and. Now, of course, I'm going to blank and now all the author names are fleeing my head. But so, so many writers of both short stories. I have written a lot of short stories in the past. And lately I have been focusing more on novels. But, you know, short story writers, Tessa Hadley, Laurie Moore um, have all been, been Amy Bender. And actually an Amy Bender story helped inspire Body of Stars. So, um, so yeah, I'm grateful for for everything that I've read.
0: I'll have to look for that story because I don't think I'm familiar with Amy Bender or the, the story that you're talking about. That's great. Um, well, we always close the, the show with a few icebreakers. So we ask the same okay. questions. There, I always say there's no point system. Okay. A few multiple choices to start off with. Dogs or cats? Both, but cats. You might have seen my cats walking around in the background. <laughs> there there has been an occasional cat on the screen. Yes. Uh-huh. That's one of my favorite things about the Zoom era, isn't it? Just the cats. Yeah. Um, coffee or tea? Quite honestly,
1: to live a happy and fulfilling life, I'm going to need both of those. So <laughs> I think though, if I had to pick, I can only drink one for the rest of my life, I'd probably pick
0: tea, but I would be upset with that choice. <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to make the decision for life. It's okay. Um, Mountains or beach? Mountains. Cake or pie? Cake. Early bird or night owl?
1: I'm kind of both. I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'd be classified as an early bird because I actually love waking up in the morning and I like it if it's early, but I also like to stay up really late watching Netflix and eating cookies, as you said. (laughs) So I'm sort of both.
0: (laughs) On the same like if you stay up really late, will you also get up early or these on the same the same time? I might sleep in a little bit extra. Yeah. Um, Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are?
1: I know where the Band-Aids are. Sadly, I listen to your podcast and I think most of your guests say risk taker, but I'm going to admit it. I'm the Band-Aid person. I've got you covered if you cut
0: yourself. Good to know. I never know where they are, but I'm hearing that we need to have them. Um, Okay, so now a few short answers. What is something quirky um, that folks don't necessarily know about you? Likes, loves, pet peeves? I mean, we already heard that you were a, a typist for the Amish. So I'm I mean, we, we probably have yeah. it if you don't know, but yeah, quirky.
1: What is coming to mind, this is only kind of recently, I've developed an interest or a fascination with mannequins, especially mannequins that have been discarded. I just read about a woman in England who has is collecting all these discarded used mannequins because often companies just throw them out and they're terrible landfill waste and she collects them in this giant like mountain in a park and you can pay her like 50 pounds and drive there and like fill up your car with mannequin parts and i'm obsessed with this and i'm so upset it's across an ocean right now because if it were in the u.s i'd be in my car like going so i i don't know i i think i'm captivated by i recently passed um, a couple years ago a woman's clothing store that was closing down and going out of business and they were i saw in the window they were selling their like mannequin parts and my heart just started pounding and i went in there and i bought it's like a bust it's like a from the neck to the hip of a woman mannequin on a metal stand and I ran in and I, I just, I was like, are you really going to let me buy this? <laughs> and they said, yes. And I think I paid like $20 for it, which in retrospect might sound like an incredibly high amount to pay for a mannequin they were about to throw out. But I felt <laughs> like I was getting a steal and I went outside with my mannequin and I like passing people in the parking lot and I'm just grinning at them. I just felt so excited. I don't know what that is. So we might have to investigate that in my <laughs> writing at some point. But apparently, I'm pleased. If anyone's listening to this, I don't need more mannequins, so don't send me mannequins. But I'm into it.
0: I have there's so much there. I think <laughs> I think we're just gonna leave it as as something quirky <laughs> a lot that I did not know about you, and I love that. And if we're ever uh, in England together, let's go ahead going. and go check it out because I'm I'm intrigued going. now. <laughs> um, what's a song that sometimes gets stuck in your head? Because now all I can think about is the, the theme song to Mannequin. Nothing's oh gosh! Gonna stop us. <laughs> but that's crazy. not okay. <laughs> um, um, what's a song that that you like, or a go-to song, or one that gets stuck oh, in gosh. your head? I mean, I guess lately,
1: when I I like to take a lot of walks as a writer to think things through, and I've been listening to um, "Running Up That Hill" by Kate Bush. So I've been listening to that
0: lately. Is she the one who sings "Come to My Window"? That Heathcliff song, I think. I was obsessed with that song about Withering Heights. I'll have to go check it out. We'll, we'll link to these things because the show notes are good for stuff Anne-Marie can't remember on the show. But um, there's a vibe, a Kate Bush vibe that I can just be in sometimes. It's just mm-hmm. exactly right. So I can picture this. Um, what's your favorite book or favorite movie or both? Oh, gosh. So... Yeah, I always
1: struggle with favorite questions because I never feel like I have one favorite. One you like. But my favorite will... changes
0: all the time.
1: This, uh, Not that I would consider this my like adult favorite movie, but I just rewatched a movie that when I was a young child, like four, four or five years old, I was obsessed with, which is The Last Unicorn. <gasps> and I just rewatched it, and it was pretty... A, pretty powerful experience because I saw things in that film and remembered things from when I was a kid watching it. And I would watch it over and over and over that really kind of made sense to me in terms of even my writing and it tied into some other things I'm interested in. And um, so that was really interesting. So I recommend that if you if anyone out there has a, an, a childhood movie they were obsessed with, give it a rewatch now and see how it holds up for you. It's interesting.
0: That is fascinating, because I'm already thinking about I haven't seen that in a hundred years, but I'm thinking about this unicorn who was trapped in a human body that uh-huh. I believe it was men wanted to imprison her in this body. i'm I'm seeing all these links to to your writing now. So that's who knew yeah. that the four year old typist for the Amish um, <laughs> would take the last unicorn. That. Wow, mm-hmm. that's so great. Um, ok. the let's see, favorite ice cream,
1: anything? Chocolate forward or
0: mint chocolate chip. Yeah, girl after my own heart. Okay, and last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see you doing?
1: Kind of the boring everyday answer would be just sitting on the couch under a blanket with a cat and some tea reading a good book. But um, now that I'm thinking about mannequins, I love to go on strange adventures. I love to see strange... Places and I visited the island of the dolls in Mexico City uh, several years ago. And it's just this island crammed full of old dolls hanging up everywhere, and they're dirty and broken and creepy and spider cobwebbed. And I loved it so much that when I got on that island and started walking around, I Basically, entered a fugue state and time just stopped for me. So so any kind of adventure like that, I'm on board and I just get
0: really into it. Oh my gosh. Well, here's two adventures because I remember them and they have been few and fleeting of late. But I I I trust and believe that the dolls and the mannequins will rise again, (laughs) which actually sounds like a horror movie. So but I I do believe there are adventures. Lang and Wade. Wow. Well, thank you, thank you, Laura, Maitlin, Walter, for coming on the show today. Um, your debut novel, Body of Stars, uh, just made me look at my body differently, folks. It will make you consider your future differently, and ultimately think hard about how much can be accomplished um, if we just believe it will be. Um, not long ago, you wrote, "quote I know how to contemplate a well written story." to recognize nuance in language, to be swept away by the beauty of words. And that's exactly what readers get to do with your book, Body of Stars. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. Um, To everyone listening, we are wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael DiAloya, producer Sarah Wilgrub, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Maybe this pandemic has been awesome for you. Life's better, everything's rosy, and you just made a million dollars. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe this has been an incredibly hard couple of years. Maybe you've made some changes, good changes, and it hasn't panned out in quite the way you hoped it would. If any of this resonates, then I want to invite you to escape into life with us at Shelter in Place, We're a podcast that started as a way to grapple with the pandemic reality. But what we quickly became was a way to rewrite life through creativity and community. If you enjoy this American life, on-being, or snap judgment, I think the chances are pretty good you'll like shelter in place. Here's what it sounds like. Some days, all I want to do is escape. I'm not just talking about getting out of my house. I'm talking about standing in a cathedral of redwoods, Or the one time I saw the Northern Lights. That feeling that I'm part of something bigger. Escape can be small too. Like the checkout worker who knows me even though we've never seen each other's faces. Or the friend who hugs me and won't let go. That kind of escape flips a switch. It reminds me that even when the world is on fire, there is also beauty and delight. I can let my guard down. For a moment, I'm home. Welcome to Shelter-in-Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. We spent season two on a pandemic odyssey that brought us from one coast to the other and back again. In season three, we're bringing you stories in search of home. What do I want to welcome back into my life and what do I want to leave behind? We're not sure what home looks like anymore we know what we want from it.
2: I want to know that I belong here. Not because of what I accomplished or earned, but because of who I am. I want a home where we don't pretend that our world isn't broken, but we're creating beauty from that brokenness.
3: We're exploring how to be human in a way that feels expansive rather than exhausting. We're learning how to escape not out of life, but into it. Listen wherever you get podcasts or head to shelterinplacepodcast.org to join us on this journey in search of home.
2: Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly